If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey, true crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDpodcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. Welcome back to Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. This week, we bring you our next multi-part series. This one won't be nearly as long as our last, we promise. In this episode, we introduce our killer, Ira Einhorn, and he is a character. We dive into his life growing up a genius and end with his first attempt at graduate school. We also give you a brief history on the counterculture of the 60s and 70s and how that environment gave Ira a platform to stand on. We also touch on his violent nature towards women, especially women who turn him down, and that will become a pivotal point in our story in later episodes. This episode contains foul language, discussions about misogyny, violence towards women, and a lot about the 60s and 70s. We'll do our best to stay on track, but the bottles are popped. Hey guys, welcome back to Death by Champagne. We're back with our next multi-part series for you. Welcome to Ira Einhorn, the unicorn murderer. Yes. I feel like I can't hear myself very well. I'm using uh, Cash's video game headphones because my JBL ones shit on me, so. Oh, sad day. (laughs) These are kind of nice, though. They're really tight, but light. Oh, yeah. So we're going to get into our second book club series of season three. 
we covered Ira Einhorn, the unicorn killer, who uh, can't remember the exact date, not relevant to our story yet, but coincidentally died at the beginning of April in prison. Yeah, died like right as we were basically starting this book. Like I had just started the book, I think. I think I was a chapter in and I got a news <laughs> alert that he had died. And I was like, well, yeah, crazy. doesn't matter to us. Now Still going to cover your fucked up story. Ending. <laughs> yeah, a true ending. I think the only business we have to get to today is thanking a new patron. Um, we're going to shout out her Etsy store, Mama Bear Creative. We've had a social media relationship for a long time, and we couldn't be happier or more grateful to have you hanging out in our list of Patreon subscribers. Yes, thank you. All the thanks. All of it. Other than that, um, the only update I have for my life is that my tooth is kind of fixed. Yay! (laughs) We had to put our series off by a week or two because I had an infected tooth that needed a root canal. Yeah, it was some bad news. It was. I am not uh I'm not a baby when it comes to pain. And that was just like hot, radiating. It was like someone was taking hot needles and putting them into my gums. No. And no, it got no, no. so bad that at first, like when I went to the urgent care dentist, I said, I don't know what tooth it is at all. Because like the top and bottom of my jaw hurt so bad. Oh. I didn't even realize it was like I knew because of the tenderness I was having, that it was my teeth. But I was like, I truly don't know. Like, if you told me there was something with my jaw, I would believe you. Right. And then they were like, yeah, well, your tooth's half gone, and it's necrotic. So have fun with that. (laughs) Gives me the chills. Glad The girl in the, the, like, tech that was helping me was hell-bent on pulling it. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) She was like... It really, it's not that bad. It's super fast. You're not going to feel it. Yeah, right. Well, I should have gotten it pulled because it was my very back tooth. I'm a moron. And when they show you like the x-ray that has all of your teeth in it and they mark which one it is, it allows for your wisdom teeth, which I don't have. So I thought it was the second to last tooth. And I was like, I'm not going to be a gap tooth bitch. Yeah. (laughs) No No one would have noticed. I don't want a hole in my teeth, but then it ended up being my very last tooth. So, (laughs) did not mind the root canal though. Didn't feel a thing. (laughs) I mean, that's the whole point. You shouldn't feel anything. (laughs) Yeah, I just a lot of people cautioned me that it was terrible, and I was like, I really don't see how the procedure itself is gonna be worse than how I feel now. So I like walked in that appointment and was like. I don't give a fuck. Don't talk to me. Put my headphones in. I queued up two of my favorite episodes of different podcasts that I've already listened to and was like, this is going to be on top volume. Do not talk to me. Um, Yeah. Also, like, how could it be any worse than, I don't know, just like a normal cavity feeling? Like, if you're all numbed up, you know, like, you don't feel it anyway. It is pretty like it invasive. Longer. Yeah. Um, I watched a video of the procedure beforehand. Why? <laughs> Why? Because uh, to use a term that's going to come up later, I'm a masochist. Oh, God. There's no way. There's no way I could do that. So I watched a video of it. It was like a, you could see a little bit of no. it, but it was mainly like an illustration of what happens to the tooth. Nope. So I was watching it and there's this part where they take little... Uh, I don't know what they're called, like little valve. They look like little rubber pieces and they stick them in your tooth. And like, basically it's like, it's just this, like as tight as it'll go, they wiggle it into the root canal. And then like, 
It's like you're cleaning a reusable straw as hard as you can, and then they pull it out, and then they take a slightly bigger one and put it in there, and they keep increasing the size, so they're making sure that they're getting all of the like infection and decayed root out of your tooth. So that part was pretty – like if you were squeamish, that would mess with you. Because uh, yeah. you can feel every bit yeah, of it, no. like no like he's holding your head like this and like yanking on it. Oh, <laughs> <Ugh. laughs> uh, no! But after that part was over, it was just like a regular dentist appointment, and I did not give a fuck. Well, that's good. I left, got in the car, said, "Go get me a milkshake." <laughs> so with tooth apocalypse over, I think we will jump right into. Our next series, we're anticipating this one being three episodes. Hopefully we can keep it under four because we don't need to talk about this bastard for that long. Yeah, agreed. So sources for this episode and series, um, it's going to grow as we go through here. I'm sure we have secondary sources that will be added by the end. But for right now, we are mainly referencing the book The Unicorn Secret, Murder in the Age of Aquarius by Stephen Levy, written uh, January 2nd, 1990. We also have an article from Salon by Neil Gordon titled Ira Einhorn's Long Strange Trip and an article by David Lindor from Salon for Ira Einhorn, A Fate Worse Than Death and a Long Reads article by Diana Whitney titled The Killer Who Spared My Mother. So a little bit about Stephen Levy, the author. His writing is primarily about technology and applied sciences, even being called America's premier technology journalist by the Washington Post. If his name sounds familiar to you, he is the editor-at-large at Wired and very recently published a book about Facebook called Facebook, The Inside Story. Released on February 25th of this year, it is a recounting of the birth of the largest social media platform in the world and how Zuckerberg built it into the towering empire it is today. He also covers the scandals that live within its virtual walls. I have read nothing that he has written <laughs> other than this book. Me either. But after this one, I would love to. We'll get into that a little bit later. <laughs> Why I like and dislike this book. Uh, so this book, our book of choice, The Unicorn's Secret, certainly feels like an outlier in his collection, but again, I haven't read anything else written by him. He has won tons of awards and has had articles and publications like The New York Times Magazine, Rolling Stone, Esquire, and The New Yorker. Overall, his writing style for me is fantastic. The sentences run long with descriptors and analogies that drive home the all-encompassing wave that is Ira Einhorn. It truly gives you the slightest bit of a feeling of how invigorating or exhausting it would be to converse with Einhorn on any of the subjects on which he was an authority. Levy's source list is absolutely rigorous, holding over 250 interviews of players in the life of Ira Einhorn and many books and articles written by those involved. He calls out the local publications, The Inquirer, The Daily Pennsylvanian, Psychadelphia Period, and Philadelphia Magazine as invaluable. I commend the minutiae that he waded through to author this casebook because his resulting work itself is, as I've said, tedious and challenging, as is befitting for the subject matter. I think his own writing style complements Ira Einhorn so much, it's crazy. Yes, completely agree with that. I have never read such a modern book where I had to look up so many words. Oh my god, I know. Like in so many references where it was just like you could tell he presumed people knew 
what he was referencing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I was reading it and I kept having to look up like all of, just like you said, references that clearly some are before our time and we're not going to know them. There's also a clear difference in education level between everyone involved in that book and us. Yes, very much. So between both the author and Ira Einhorn, there were unbelievable amounts of information that you would have to like pull out your laptop and be like, okay, now I have to research this for an hour so I can understand this paragraph. Uh, yeah. In 1999, the book was turned into a miniseries for NBC, starring Kevin Anderson as Ira Einhorn and Naomi Watts as Holly Maddox. And I am going to try to find it and watch it. <laughs> I'm not optimistic yeah. about my odds of actually finding it or enjoying it, but whatever. I can't imagine it will be enjoyful, but I do want to watch it <laughs> no. as well. Yeah, I feel like it'll be bad, but I want to watch someone try to act as him and see if they live up to what I have in my head. <laughs> Although I should say when I mention what is in my head, I told Olivia that his voice for me was John C. Riley, <laughs> Which is absurd. <laughs> I know. I think it's just because they talk about him like he's this big buff bear of a guy. Yeah. And that makes me think of him, like him having big curly hair and just like slap a beard on John C. Riley and put him in a camp counselor outfit. <laughs> Some Birkenstocks, jorts, uh, and yeah, that's what he is. Yeah, totally. And so Olivia had a had a different point of view. <laughs> I pictured, oh fuck, now I'm not going to remember his name. Jax from the motorcycle show. Charlie Hunnam. Yes, Charlie Hunnam. I pictured him with a big beard and like, you know, at least 100 pounds heavier. Well, they would clearly pick him to cast him anyway because they always make people more attractive than they were. That is true. That is true. That being said, he looks like if you had taken... This is not a dig on like a scale of 1 to 10 or like an attractiveness slider. It's just his features. He looks like someone like carved a garden statue. Yes. But then yes. turned it into a human. Yes. Like those old I don't, like Greeky ones where their lips are like yes. really... Like, prominent. Yes, and he just has the most and insane, long, like, wide cheekbones. Yes, yes, exactly. He looks like a statue exactly. turned into a human. You know who else he looks like? Um, did you watch Girls? No. Fuck. Okay, anyone who watched Girls, the guy that um, Jenna's character, like, babysits for, the dad. I'm going to find I'll have him. to look that reference up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so now that we've covered the author, let's get into the international fugitive of the hour himself. Ira Einhorn was a born scholar, chasing in-depth knowledge from every source available from a young age. Possessing confidence that eased others into deep conversations, Ira carved a space for himself in the halls of counterculture history. He impressed and charmed his way through a chain of important professors, authors, scientists, musicians, and businessmen to secure himself stability while standing within the ranks of hippies advocating for LSD research, smoking weed, and protesting war. His personality hinged on a narcissistic defiance disguised as a mantra to question everything, and he frequently lived above his own guidelines. He was the link between the have and have-nots, the lone rook with the unique ability to proselytize to his followers about the man, but also navigate relationships with those men, from government contacts in Yugoslavia to rubbing elbows while teaching a seminar at Harvard after he was accused of and under investigation for murder. 
Ira had a little black book full of names who would testify on his behalf, literally dozens of upstanding citizens willing to stake their own reputations on his convictions. He also had a history of violence that was not hard to find. Had he not been so successful in creating the aura of the great unicorn, maybe any one of his friends, students, teachers, or colleagues would have spoken out against his sexist and abusive treatment of the women around him. Some of the same characteristics that made Ira a great intellectual and organizer could change their colors, becoming a dark veil of anger that led to violence against four women. As Ira aged, his circle of pet projects and beliefs expanded and contracted around the ideas of psychotronic weaponry, UFOs, and government mind control using ELF waves, becoming known as a New Age pioneer. As he sunk deeper into a world he deemed dangerous for public consumption, his behavior grew agitated and almost intolerable to those he was still in contact with. Though he had always been eccentric, Ira grew increasingly intense in the fall of 1977. As the world would come to know, his slight unraveling coincided with the disappearance of his girlfriend of five years, Helen Holly Maddox. Ira Einhorn was born to Beatrice and Joseph Einhorn on May 15, 1940. The two lived in nearby neighborhoods growing up, and Joseph, son to Russian immigrants, first met Beatrice when she was just 15. Throughout her teenage years and into her marriage, Beatrice was bold, assertive, and shrewd. She was successful at her job in the financial reports department of the Dunn and Bradstreet firm. She started as a typist and was so efficient that she eventually climbed to the position of department head. Her father made a living sourcing goods others would need and selling it to them on a payment plan with interest, and she decided that Joe was also going to do that for a living. He was in the fruit business, and that wasn't lucrative enough for her liking. He ran a produce store, and she was like, I think not. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I need more money. <laughs> <laughs> to quote the Instagram video I sent you, more money, honey. <laughs> Ira came along five years into their marriage, and type A Beatrice threw all of her effort into raising a baby genius. She quit her job to stay home with Ira, and in 1944, they had a second son named Stephen. Stephen was pretty much the polar opposite of Ira. He had numerous ailments as a child, was far more reserved, and honestly, probably not loved nearly as much as their firstborn son. So growing up, Ira was absolutely special. His mom recalls from a very young age that Ira was constantly reading, learning, and seeking knowledge. Even as a young child, he didn't sleep more than five hours a night. Beatrice would wake up to get the kids up and breakfast started, and Ira would already be awake reading a book. Although this behavior seemed not only astonishing but inspirational at a young age, it became a major problem once he uh, actually got to school. At the age of five, he could easily have been in a second grade class. The school even advised this, but his father worried what that would do to him socially. So he was stuck learning at the same pace as other kids who were far behind him intellectually. This led Ira to being extremely bored with school, acting up in the classroom, and consistently having P for poor on his report card for behavior. But he always excelled academically. I wonder what that would have done to him, actually, if they had moved him. I think he might have been a totally different person. Probably, but I don't know if he'd be any better off. Like... True. Yeah, he probably because would have I'm been thinking, bullied major, major, yeah. more than he ends up being bullied. Like, Yeah, and I think, too, maybe his personality was already so cemented at that point, like his mindset, that I was thinking that maybe he wouldn't be so gifted and so praised 
if he was actually at a level yeah. that challenged him. But I think then he That's still true. might have hinged on the storyline of mm-hmm. like, I was in second grade when I was five. Yeah. So I'm important and special. Yeah. So by the time his family moved out of the city, closer to the suburbs, Iroh was approaching high school. And out in the suburbs, there were two options. A public school for all genders and classes, or a private college prep school, male only. It was an obvious choice for Ira and his family, and he ended up attending Central High, which was the college prep school. His top marks and high IQ made him a very likely candidate. At Central High, after realizing the cruelty of high school when you are a small guy, he bulked up one summer, tried out for the football team, ran cross country, and even became captain of the ping pong team. He could do it all, it seemed, not just academics. He could excel athletically as well. So in 1956, he has his first experience with marijuana, and when he graduated in 1957, he wasn't like any of his classmates. He didn't purchase a class ring, he didn't want his photo in the yearbook, and he didn't want to go to prom, which interfered with his brother's bat mitzvah anyway. He did end up going to prom, though, which almost ruined his high school career after the school threatened not to graduate him because he showed up in jeans and a button-up shirt. So, like, that's the level this school was, that they threatened to not graduate him because of what he showed up to in prom. <laughs> I suppose they can do whatever they want because it was, like, a private school. Right, it's probably thousands of dollars to go there. But I just can't even... Sorry, what? I know. Do my call it, Do my credits just, like, not count right, now like, because what? I wore jeans? Like, I want to see so which dumb. class specifically you're going to mark uh, off on my report card. Yeah. Oh, speaking of, brief personal side note, Cash graduated from college last weekend. Yay! Congrats, He's Cash. completely done. Yay. Um, he got an apology email after the online virtual commencement ceremony. They forgot to read his <gasps> name. No. <laughs> it's not like any of us watched it, but he's going to email them and be like, that was really rude, and my family really wanted to see that <laughs> and see what they say. Oh, I mean, that is a bummer, but like... Yeah, he was like, I was not going to watch that two-hour ceremony where they just read everyone's names No, fuck that. Anyway, (laughs) back to Einhorn. Back to it. So during um, Ira's senior year in high school, he was awarded a scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania. So in 1957, Einhorn is 17 right now. He starts college at the University of Pennsylvania. He initially goes into a physics major. He pledges a frat, survives Hell Week, and then immediately quits the frat. (laughs) Uh, I have so many feelings about that. I know. (laughs) Lots. So to put it very simply, Ira was a fucking nightmare to have as a student. (laughs) It's very obvious he didn't like authority or the idea that you should read the suggested material and then memorize the teacher's favorite pieces of information that may be on the test like that's how he viewed college is like oh well because you're put in this position of power like I have to believe you and trust you like okay so an example used in uh, Levy's book is that if there were 10 books on the required reading list and 100 on the suggested reading list outside of class Ira would start with the 100 outside of class he would find passages quotes anything that he would then bring up in class that contradicted what the teacher was discussing. Like, just to 
be a fucking asshole in my opinion. Like, and just to kind of, I think put himself on a higher pedestal of like, he probably like felt really good about doing that. Oh, I'm sure he did. I think he really, that was a huge part of his self-importance and his self-esteem Yes, was knowing even at that young of an age, 17, I'm the smartest person in the room. Yes. That's exactly, that's what it was. He truly believed that he was above all others. He enjoyed mocking those he deemed less worthy. And I mean, yeah, this became a formidable part of his life, especially in college. Yes, I was going to say the only difference between a stereotypical person who thinks they're the smartest person in the room, but then maybe displays traits of procrastination, perceived laziness, doesn't follow through, but has a big opinion. He did follow through. He was the smartest person in the room. Yes, he absolutely absolutely could outread the teacher, could outcomprehend anyone in the class. He was like bringing new material to class that other students wanted. He had he was just a genius. Yeah, yeah. Or could have been. Yeah. And I can't imagine. I think we talked about this off the podcast, just like being that intelligent and having no one. I mean, essentially no one to keep up with you. You know, you're very alone in the world when you can think that advanced above everyone else. (laughs) Definitely. I mean, it's like you have to to put it in pop culture terms that we can imagine being at a dinner table with taylor swift or with kanye west right what do you even say no idea (laughs) nothing that interests them no (laughs) so then we get into morse peckham he was an english teacher at penn state with a very rich history but also sounds just like a stuffy know-it-all in my opinion you know those type of english teachers or english people who just like think they were a descendant of Shakespeare themselves. Like, they're just above everyone else. So, I mean, yeah, he obviously got along with Ira. Um, Ira met him when he took World Lit, and he is who we can thank for Ira's change in major from physics to literature. So to say Ira was fond of Morse Peckham is a major understatement. He adored him. He completely looked up to him, almost saw him as a father figure who he could actually learn from, And the brooding, strict Morse was actually impressed with Ira himself, which was apparently extremely hard to do. So they became so close that Peckham gave Ira a key to his house and welcomed him anytime. There was obvious speculation about the pair's relationship, but according to Morse Peckham, nothing romantic happened. Ira truly was the only person who could keep up with his own mind, his own theories and thoughts, and he essentially used Ira as a tool for testing his own hypotheses. Uh, He also urged Ira to go to grad school, even offering to pay for Ira's tuition. It didn't take much convincing because Ira, having worked a number of summer jobs throughout his college career, came to the understanding that, in quotes, earning a living was an old form. For himself, he wanted a lifetime occupation of learning and living. I'm going to go ahead and say that I identify with that statement. Oh, totally. (laughs) Totally. I was also just like a tiny touch of this asshole in college. Oh my God, of course you were. <laughs> I always had something contradictory to say, always had something extra to add to the conversation just because I needed validation in the form of positive attention oh from an authority God. figure constantly. I still do. But but now like you're my authority figure. As long as I make you happy in the podcast and I get along <laughs> with my coworkers, it satiates me. Oh, 
that's true. That's true. I but that's don't think I've... why I picked Carbondale. Oh, I yeah. wanted to go to a school that's associated with this like 70s buck the institution, yeah. fuck the man mentality. Yeah. That is the sole reason I went there. Oh my God. That's interesting. I definitely, I was like that with teachers I didn't like because I liked to make people feel stupid when I thought they were stupid. So, <laughs> Even if they were I actually right, you were like, well, let me make some problems for you. Yes. <laughs> let me make you hate your job. <laughs> the only other thing I have to add to that, as far as Morse Peckham and their relationship, he literally talks about Morse Peckham like Sansa Stark talked about anyone with an ounce of power or blonde hair. It's so true. <laughs> so true the worship that happens in that relationship oh yeah not only the worship of the actual person but then the importance that like reflects off of morse peckham and attaches back to him for being Mm -hmm. his favorite pupil Mm -hmm. and how much it elevates ira in his own mind oh yes becomes really important yes we get we'll pick back up on morse peckham later in the timeline it is very it's yeah it's a very obviously from the outside in unhealthy relationship <laughs> that they just kind of fed off each other like this yeah which i don't know how like how unhealthy it was for morris peckham i think he was probably surprised and delighted to find someone anyone that he liked yeah, and could also true. talk to about things that he enjoyed that is true but i think definitely towards the end of his college career and like into Iris' 30s, he's like, what is this guy on? Yes. (laughs) This isn't good. Yes. So before we really dive into Ira Einhorn's life in the 60s, uh, we think it's important to kind of set a baseline for the era. So I'm going to cover what the counterculture was, what that means. We say the word a million times, so let's just set a base for what it is. Diving a little deeper into what the counterculture movement was and how it gave Einhorn a platform to stand on, which also pretty much sums up and explains the number of cults that came out of the 60s and 70s. Cha-ching. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start with the 60s. Technically, a little before that, the Vietnam War was in full swing by the early 60s, having started in 1955, and it wouldn't end until 1975. So the U.S.'s discussion of involvement in the Vietnam War began in 1954 when President Eisenhower gave a speech um, kind of acknowledging like the French army was defeated and their failure to gain control over Indochina against communist rule and how because that happened to such a powerful, you know, anti-communist army that it could have this domino effect happening to anyone who tried to defeat them. So this so-called domino effect or theory would be one of the biggest topics of discussion for the next decade. So in 1959, American soldiers were killed in South Vietnam after their camp was raided. And at this point, the U.S. had not officially entered the Vietnam War. That wouldn't technically be until 1965. But America definitely inserted themselves under Kennedy's presidency um, in the early 60s including spraying Agent Orange over rural areas of South Vietnam to eliminate the guerrilla forces' food supply. So while all of this is going on overseas, America has seen a major shift in society. World War II had ended not that long ago, in 1945, while the Korean War had ended really not long ago, in 1953, and the dominant group of people a.k.a. the baby boomers, who were growing up during the 60s, were born just after or possibly during World War II. 
A lot of them probably grew up without fathers or grandfathers, and the idea of entering into another war was not something anyone a part of the counterculture wanted. So then we get into the real idea behind the counterculture movement, which was very anti-establishment and pro-choice, not necessarily talking about, like, babies when I say pro-choice with that. They were, but, like, literally they wanted not only themselves, but everyone in the world to have choice. They didn't want the draft. They didn't want the war. Some not even alive when talks of the U.S. joining the Vietnam War began. Um, It was all literally the perfect combination to create a space for angsty teens and lost young adults in this world their parents built and expected them to follow. But guess what? They didn't (laughs) fucking want it. (laughs) Not interested. They wanted free love, free speech, equal rights for all, regardless of gender or color. Uh, They stood for a lot of great things. Absolutely. But reading this book, I was like, oh, my God, I'm glad I didn't grow up in the fucking 60s. Like, this is a nightmare. (laughs) Like It kind of turned into what is the most outrageous thing we could ask for? And go against the government. Like, honestly, like, that's what it spiraled into. So the radical, in quotes, this radical movement wasn't everything. From the music industry, when the Beatles first made their U.S. appearance in 1964, to universities creating these sub-entities called free universities, which we talk about later. All with the same idea to let people be creative in whatever way they saw fit no longer fitting into this mold that was created by their parents' generation and enforced by the government. It was a time to rebel, to go against the norm, experiment with drugs and sex, which had been very subdued in the past and definitely not talked about. So what most of us probably attribute to happening during the 60s really happened during the 70s. The 60s was kind of ground for this movement to form, primarily against entering the Vietnam War. That was like the main backing. And then the 70s is where it grew tenfold. People really embraced the hippie lifestyle. They had more sex. They took more drugs. Their protests began to get violent. And some viewpoints grew to the extreme. So this is a quote from a Columbia University counterculture era notes uh, that I pulled off Wikipedia. It says, although historians disagree over the influence of the counterculture on American politics and society, most describe the counterculture in similar terms. Virtually all authors, so whether you were Republican, Democrat, left or right, any of them, characterize the counterculture as self-indulgent, childish, irrational, narcissistic, and even dangerous. Even so, many liberal and leftist historians find constructive elements in it, while those on the right tend not to. So I would say for pretty much everyone involved in this movement, uh, their parents' beliefs differed. As we now know, this breeds the perfect victim to fall into the hands of a cult leader. They're cut off from those they love because of something they believe is fundamentally right. They're young and impressionable, and with the amount of new ideas, philosophies, beliefs, all being created during the 60s and 70s, it wouldn't be unheard of for someone who was a total whack job to get their ideas heard. Because this was about accepting, accepting everyone, hearing them out, and truly listening to others. Anyone who was charismatic and a good speaker could have persuaded a lot of people to do a lot of things during this time. I feel like when I hear you read that, we are at such a prime place in society to see notes of this happen again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> On both sides. 
people are so it's consumed terrifying. with being right. Yeah. Yeah. That it's there's just so much irrationality. Mm-hmm. Even if you're making the right decision or you stand on a good side per whatever your side is, like if you have a good viewpoint, if you ask someone why, they a lot of the times don't know or can't speak to it in a way that's thorough. Oh, for sure. For sure. This is And I mean, yeah, we're all guilty very... of it because you just hear the end goal of like, that's the thing I believe in. Who fucking cares? Yes. <laughs> yes. And you forget about all of the bullshit legislation and the people that take advantage of you in the middle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very interesting, too, because it's like they... People who are a part of this movement, like, you know, it's all about free choice and whatever, but yet they're still a right and wrong in their mind. So it's like, so it's not free choice. It's like, I have to pick your choice. Yeah. (laughs) Not my own choice. Like, not unless it's even even people who are like, well, I don't want to do drugs and have sex in out in public and do orgies. And it's like, well, you're wrong then. Like... (laughs) Yeah, there are definitely people on that side of it that are like, you need to express yourself to that level or this isn't really worth it to you. So it's so it's very, yeah, interesting to think of it that way. Just like I spent an embarrassing amount of time in like high school and really early college at a local bookstore seeking out literature like about the counterculture movement. I didn't even understand when I was 17 or 18, like, what that was called or what it was. But, like, the literature that came from that time, I really followed authors from the 70s. I was all into reading about people who experimented with acid. I was very obsessed with it. That's insane to me. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I just have this, like, really romanticized view of the 60s and 70s until I read this book. And then I was like, I would not have fucking wanted to be a part of any of that. Everyone sounds dirty and loud and rude. And I'm not interested. Like no. I think there's a lot of that. And there's it's just this, like you said, it's a perfect greeting, breeding ground for if you maybe don't have the critical thinking skills of the person that you're taking advice from. Yes, that, that was the other thing is it's like you're like most of the book that describes all of that. I'm like, you're literally just listening to someone else. You're like you're not even making your own opinion or formulating your own ideas. You're just choosing to pick this other entity instead of the government who you've all of a sudden decided is bad. So now you have to listen to this, these crazy people, some of them. Yes. <laughs> Yesterday's counterculture guru is today's Facebook Karen. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To put it in plain terms that millennials understand, (laughs) us stupid millennials. Uh. Hey, true crime listeners. 
As you all know, researching and discussing crimes in the occult is our passion, but even we need an occasional break. When I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is the mobile puzzle game Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun puzzle game that you can play right on your phone. It's a great game. You get to solve challenging puzzles that actually engage your brain, but it's casual and anyone can play. My go-to time to decompress is right before bed, after I've shut down my laptop and I need a break from the research, reading, and writing. I finally made it past level 472, and I'm definitely playing again as soon as we're done recording. Best Fiends is also visually stimulating, with its bright colors and cute characters. And Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it never gets old. Download today and engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Ira Einhorn graduates from college with a BA in literature. Only after having to retake just one class during the summer months because the teacher failed him. That teacher told Ira's mother, how can I pass your son? I don't even know what he looks like. When born of sheer privilege, he fails and he calls his mommy. Yeah. And she's like, what can I do to help? Yeah. Yeah. So according to Ira's own count, he was maybe present in class 5% of the time. Regardless, he made the class up and ended up graduating, even though he took a firm stance that he would not do that bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So moving into 1962, this is clearly a time in Ira's life where he is drunk on learning, despite his poor attendance record. For two years, he basically just read books. It was a dizzying compilation of swerves and U-turns and different interests and research in research topics. He felt very conflicted about his wealth of knowledge one day versus the next, feeling like he just needed to soak in all the learning and possibility that he could. He speaks of, quote, learning to be patient. Americans just want to produce and don't know how to wait to ripen. He seems to be preparing himself for a career of an intellectual stature that just isn't seen anymore. He told his friend Michael Hoffman about an incident where he tried to have a conversation with a girl, and he apparently did not correctly adjust his level of enthusiasm, and she literally ran away from him, very uncomfortable at his wild (laughs) exuberance. Which, I wonder, we're going to talk about a woman later, I wonder if it's her. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. The author Levy points to more evidence of Ira's mood swings through quotes plucked from letters. He talks about the unimaginable hell of my esoteric life versus I feel the deep beauty of self-realization quite often and know I'm becoming what I am at a bewildering rate of speed. So as he spends all of his time contemplating life and how he should spend his time, he keeps thinking about teaching, even though in this book he has just said for three goddamn pages that he feels like even though he sees his own incredible potential, he just isn't ready. Yes. He then says this gem. One day, while listening to Bach's B minor mass, Ira decided it would not do to teach just English or history. He must teach where there is deepest involvement that was ever present, life itself. He thinks so highly of himself (laughs) that he's like, not only will I teach, I just have to teach my way. I can't teach about one subject. I know too much. There's too much out there. Oh, Ira. (laughs) I, I still, I think, 
I would be really interested, not that it exists or I would ever be able to get my hands on it. I want to see his psyche valve. Yes. Oh, 100%. I think he had a personality disorder. Oh, I think he could fool someone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I think he's a regular Ed Kemper. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he could definitely just research whatever it was that they said he had and then act a different way to be like, no, I don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he seems to go through... I don't know, because he has a very high level of energy all the time. All the time. He does seem to go through a little bit of an ebb and flow of what could be manic depressive. Oh, for sure. Yes. Yes. Especially when because it's not... like old girlfriends talk about like him snapping, like that you could see yes. it in his eyes, that he wasn't the same person. Yes. He would get very... Like, it wasn't always connected to his energy level. It was... The way that he presented himself, mm-hmm. that he would be like excited, but coherent and calm. And then the next day he would talk about the same subject and just be like literally wild eyed. Like he could not get his eyes to focus. Yeah. And he's one of those like on the cover of the book, you can see all the whites. of his mm-hmm. eyes. It's his mm-hmm. mugshot and like you can see his whole eyeball. <laughs> there are just shades of Charles Manson left, right and center for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going a little out of the timeline here as far as Levy tells it. He holds any evidence that Einhorn was previously violent until the very end of the story, which makes sense in this reveal, like, gotcha kind of way. Like, look, he's guilty. But for me, the rest of the book is too bulky and Einhorn himself is too droning and tiring for this device to be used successfully. I think it's more impactful and important to tell the story of the victims and present things chronologically. Totally. Um, So I'm shaky on exact dates, but in the transitional period of the end of his undergrad degree and when Einhorn started his master's, he had a relationship with a young woman named Rita Siegel, who was a student at Bennington College. She was a book smart dancer from Long Island and calls herself shy and of poor self-esteem. The bond the two of them had in reality was much different than she saw and was much different than Ira saw it. She needed a leader, someone to guide her at a time when she felt uncertainty and was being constantly thrust into new situations. And Ira took her timidness for servitude, and with his baseline of being overbearing and stifling, the relationship grew to have a huge imbalance of power. He wrote of her, "'When I'm with her, all disappears.'" And no matter how she acts, the calm of knowing descends upon me. All becomes joy and light. Long live love. (laughs) I said, he sounds like me at 13. Calm down. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you're not going to marry the boy you just made out with at the bowling alley. Stop writing about it in your (laughs) fucking diary. He never learned how to communicate through difficult feelings or recognize the validity of the emotions of others, so he chose to only see her through rose-colored glasses. And when she took them off via her bad behavior, he didn't remove them. It was her fault. Rita herself said that the relationship felt more sickly than loving, but too intimidated to speak up, she stayed. She said he would get so worked up about subjects he was studying that he would shout and become angry like she was the thing he was speaking out against, or that she was the grain of information itself that he had been searching for, and he had to squeeze it and keep it. She would run from him during these outbursts. I run from the room. Like, literally he run. Would, yeah. He, like, he would become so loud and crazed about what he was talking about that he would stop noticing her. And she was afraid for her safety. So she would leave the room. Um, 
I don't know. There's no real detail about this or no good way to like transition it. It's mentioned at this point that she also saw him abuse a cat by thrusting it into the shower over and over Mm. again and making it like cry because it didn't want to be wet. Mm. There's nothing else like that or about that in the book. Yeah. But I, it's a very strange instance to me because it's just such an outlier. I think like, honestly, the, these, there's small moments of him being violent that they all seem to be outliers. Like, really, from That's the rest true. of the book, it's like, yeah, so maybe he did hurt a cat once. Maybe he hurt a bird once. Like, he didn't he didn't kill that many women or hurt that many women, but, like, it, they all seem to be outliers when the number of women he was with and the number right. of and we... people he comes into contact with where he doesn't do or behave violently or aggressively at all. Yes, and as we'll find out, his ratio of people who have seen him act out versus the magnitude of people who have seen him be the counterculture guru that they want to follow, there's no comparison. Right, right. To give talks in front of hundreds of people who think you are literally a psychic god. Yeah. And then your one girlfriend says, he's put my cat in the shower for fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was more lying the lines of like, where did you even get a cat? He never had pets. I know, I don't know. (laughs) No idea. It had to have been one that he brought in from outside, which is just weirder. Yeah. Uh, So it's going to get a little dark. This series definitely does not have as many intense trigger warnings as our last one, but it gets dark here. Levy inserts an excerpt here from Ira's diary. Sadism. Sounds nice. Run it over your tongue. Contemplate with joy the pains of others as you expire with an excruciating satisfaction. Project outward the vision of inward darkness. Let no cesspool of inner meaning be concealed. Reveal the filth that you are. Know the animal is always there. Beauty and innocence must be violated, for they cannot be possessed. The sacred mystery of another must be preserved. Only death can do that. I said, are you fucking kidding me, Charles Manson? (laughs) And then I remembered as I wrote it, I'm not to the point that I can insert the quote into this episode. He literally quotes Charles Manson to multiple people. Oh, my God. So that's a fun comparison you can look forward to later. Yeah. Yeah. Into July of 1962, Rita knew she needed to leave and figured when her summer job was over that she could exit gracefully from the situation. Ira also knew it was falling apart and his journals again further lift the curtain to slow burning anger. On July 28th, he wrote, Death may join us where life fails. Rita and I have come to an impasse. I can no longer tolerate her selfishness or lack of faith. My dreams are realizable and will not be snuffed out by the fear of anyone. So goodbye to my love and good luck to my replacement. May he be more willing to be taken advantage of. Oh my God. (laughs) And I'm just like, have I ever cared about anyone so much to write such a farewell letter? I'm just so in awe of anyone who claims to feel that deeply, <laughs> let alone taking it to, to this level of, like, fear and insanity. <laughs> well, right. And then he just, like, bl- like that last part, like, may you find someone more willing to be taken advantage of? Like, shut the fuck up. Taken advantage of in the sense that she's just saying this doesn't work for me. Right. That's all right. she's saying. 
And he's not talking about faithfulness in the physical sense of sex. He means that she no longer believes in them, which means that she doesn't believe in him as a guru, and that is not allowed. Exactly. So on July 30th, Ira had just finished reading a book called Venus in Furs, written by Leopold von Sacher Massach. I don't know what language or nationality that is. I kind of gave it a French-German compilation. (laughs) Uh, But from the term... That's where we get masochism. So the book follows the main character, an English nobleman, in his quest to find a, quote, voluptuous and cruel woman who will enslave him. Directly from the Goodreads summary, this is a passionate and powerful portrayal of one man's struggle to enlighten and instruct himself and others in the realm of desire. This remains a classic literary statement on sexual submission and control. Ira wrote of his reading experience, A book like Venus and Furs reminds us of what we are, blackness and light. To beat a woman, what a joy. To bite her breasts and ass. How delightful to have her return the favor in our sensitive areas. That's not the entire quote, but that's the part that was really important. It goes on, it's just him wondering, like, should I take power or should I submit? What is the correct answer? How do we decide our lot in life? Are we the abusee or the abuser? Yeah. He's nuts. Oh, yeah. That almost like all of that part of the book where it reads those kind of excerpts from his diary. It's just it's almost like an act like it doesn't feel real. And maybe it's because it's at the end of the book after you've read, you know, everything. It's about like you have him, read it's like, well, you've read him and his words through the lens of a coherent author. Right. And then you are exposed in the last less than 100 pages to this. To this that happened and I'm like, way before. Like, yes, that happened like the early. startling. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a startling juxtaposition of like, oh, this is what he's been writing about his, the whole time? Right, right. Because it's written from a perspective of outside looking in, when in reality the author has access to some of his journals. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, just publish those. <laughs> please. I oh want to read God, those. Yeah. Because I, it's obviously... I can't speak to terms of legality or like a psychiatric diagnosis, but to read that this is what he's entrenched in all the time and then hear that he's violent to women. Yeah. He admits everything he does. He writes down every oh, yeah. act that oh, he commits. Yeah. yeah, writes everything down about it. It's unreal. So his next step that night was Rita's dorm room. She told him he was not welcome, but backed up anyway when he crowded the doorway and she sidestepped away from him as he came in. He locked the door and slowly walked to her. She said it was like his eyes changed, as if he was a werewolf. She fought back, but he was huge, and she didn't stand a chance. He strangled her with both hands until she passed out. And as I just said, not only does Ira admit this, he wrote in his diary the next day, July 31st, to kill what you love when you can't have it seems so natural that strangling Rita last night seemed so right. He also told his friend Michael Hoffman about it, who recounted the dark story to the author. He talked about how, watching the color of her face change, something clicked at the last minute and he let go. Iris seemed to think that because he had enough control to know he shouldn't kill her, it was fine, and this divine revelation about control meant that he didn't need to face consequences or seek help for his mentality. Ira would later tell Rita that he did come back to the room that night to make sure she didn't die. She never pressed charges, but did complain to the school and have him banned from campus. 
Ira continued to be obsessed with discovering and dissecting his own motivations and relating his violence back to other events and people in literature and history. So fucked. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, and I think I have anxiety. <laughs> So we're into 1963. Ira is 23. He was just about to begin grad school. Oh, um, getting his degree in folklore at the University of Pennsylvania. You heard that right. A grad degree in folklore. I apologize to anyone who has that as their degree. But what the fuck? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) What a goddamn waste of time. It's so specific. Like, unless you want to teach, then by all means, obviously, get a grad degree, get a PhD in folklore if that's your end game is to, like, teach at a four-year university. But, like, what are you going to do with that? Like, (laughs) in my 29 years, I've been exposed to folklorists three times. So I guess those are pretty decent odds if everyone can say three times. (laughs) Yeah. I had one. I had one of my, like... I don't elective English classes. I took a folklore class and that lady was batshit crazy. Like it was, I loved the class. (laughs) I can't imagine. I loved everything we read, but she was absolutely insane. (laughs) Like she looked like she lived in like a cave deep in the woods. Like picture that woman (laughs) and that's who she was. (laughs) Well, you have to. You have to live in a cave in the woods. That's true. Um, Uh, When we did our, oh my God, like dozens of episodes ago when we did like a cryptid one, I think I read a little bit on a folklore website that was like seemingly by a quote professional. And then when else? Um, I recently watched that clown documentary on Hulu and they cite a folklorist Mm. who talks about the phenomenon of clowns coming out of the woodwork and killing you with a knife. Maybe it's a thing. I'm sorry, everyone, if you're really into that, but <laughs> I think it's... You can be into it. You can totally be, be sure. into it. Just, like, don't get a grad degree in it. Also, why are you taking educational advice from two bitches <laughs> who have so much... Edu- How much do you think oh, we've collectively oh, spent on oh, our education? I don't even... Oh, I don't even want to know. I haven't looked. And neither of us make six figures. It's oh, disgusting. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, coming from the person who got a fashion degree <laughs> who is not using it... Don't take my advice. How many people get a fashion degree and don't use it, though? Everyone. That's not uncommon. (laughs) Or at least not to say that you don't use it, but you don't use it in the conventional way that you're like, I'm going to design clothes. I used it to make my doll an outfit. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Okay, so prior to his grad degree starting, uh, Ira moved in with Peckham to wait for an apartment of his own to become available. Uh, he finally got a place in the prime land of the outcast during this time, an area in Philadelphia known as the Palton Village. The author describes this area of Philly as, in quotes, Philadelphia's Bohemia, the place that housed its outcast, fringe characters, mavericks, counterculturists, and lunatics, along with a number of people who were just plain poor. So this... <laughs> Great description. I love that quote. (laughs) I quoted. I loved it. Okay, so like we made separate notes for this. I just like lightly made notes on the first half of the book and then I'm writing the second half and then we're kind of just like filling it in together. This part on mine, I took the time to type an entire verse from Rent. (laughs) (laughs) I just sang to myself the whole time. We're not gonna pay rent. (laughs) It's essentially what it was. 
It was identical. (laughs) So this area was located just a few blocks from Penn State, making it the perfect destination for college kids. It was obviously the 60s at this point, um, kind of as we've already discussed, a huge transformation on thought, ideals, etc. for America, especially for America's youth. Ira was amongst those individuals, but the problem was that Ira truly believed his thoughts to be completely original, and because of his charismatic, cult-like leadership abilities, other belie- others believed him too. In reality, he was just like most 20-year-olds. I mean, obviously intelligent and genius level, but, you know, the rest of it, most 20-year-olds. Figuring out the path uh, they paved for themselves isn't right, and he's having a total complex about it. So like most <laughs> 60s youth, he got high, really fucking high, on Christmas Eve, He had thoughts he truly believed put him on a complete other playing field. More than that, a whole other realm that other individuals, oh, than other individuals. And it was in those early years of the 60s and his prime frontal lobe development that he determined he was a guru, (laughs) also known as the unicorn. I didn't read through that before. It's perfect. Uh, yes. I don't know how annoying it is to listeners for me to literally laugh like <laughs> sorry, at no, ourselves, I but I love it. Oh, God. Sorry, everyone. Um, yeah. So he, this is when he came up with the name The Unicorn that he referred to himself as. Like, I, I was kind of oh, confused yeah. by that because I feel like it wasn't totally fully discussed in the book. Like, it's not like, did he, did other people refer to him as The Unicorn? I think so, okay. but only, I don't think it was, like, a huge deal. Like, no one actually called him the unicorn. I think it was more of a matter of, like, what's the word? Like, pomp and circumstance. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. the unicorn's going to come to this meeting. Uh, and then someone would be like, who's the unicorn? And then it. they would have to have a discussion about the guru coming to lecture on whatever topic. Got it. Got it. And he also mm-hmm. referred to himself as the unicorn in several poems. Oh, gross. gross. Stab me with your horn. End my <laughs> life. <laughs> So a quote from Levy's book uh, by Ira is, I have no desire to be anything but Ira, fully realized in whatever manner possible. So from this epiphany, he decided now would be a good time to drop out of grad school. (laughs) For late. (laughs) uh, We talk about it all the time that looking back, uh, shit is 2020, but Ira just wasn't ready didn't want to, whatever it was, he was, like we've discussed, not prepared to become a professor yet. So he lived his entire life being the smartest, the best, yet he was only the best at what he validated as exciting and interesting enough to be the best at. I think his old professor, Peckham, who is quoted in uh, the book, in Levy's book, sums up Ira in this moment in time. So Peckham states, he was primarily interested not in the validity of ideas, but in their, ex- in their excitement. I was still very interested in him and very friendly with him, but I began to feel that talking to him was like being in an echo chamber, just my own ideas being fed back to me without any modification or any thought on his part. So over the next few years, um, oh, sorry, over the next few years that Ira occupied the apartment at the complex known as the Piles, He came to be that guy that everyone knew, whether they wanted to or not. Ira felt completely comfortable walking into someone's apartment, striking up a conversation, and raiding their fridge. He was the quirky housemate that everyone accepted and loved for his strangeness. And this is how I know I don't fit into this time period. Oh, 100% no. If you're going to fucking come to my door and open my fridge and have nothing on, no. Fuck off. No. (laughs) 
Not even in a place called the Piles. No. No. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> you dirty old man. So Iris' ex- expenses were not grand. Rent for his two-bedroom apartment was $72 a month, which he split with Ugh. whoever was rooming with him at the time. He had pretty much no furniture, just the essentials, and he mooched most of his food from other tenants and borrowed money from family and friends with no intent to give it back. One big source of income for Ira at this time was dealing pot, like, obviously, as probably most people <laughs> during this time. Yeah, I there was one line in the book that I laughed at that was like, he did keep an extremely detailed creditor's book (laughs) on who he owed money to, but everyone knew that it was like, he kept it in the same way that you would keep a book of comics. Right. It was just funny for him to look at it. Levy notes during the grad school years that Ira really abandoned any reserve and started attempting to correspond with the authors of the books he was reading. Two in particular that he couldn't stop thinking about were Alan Watts' Psychotherapy East and West and Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. The second book is notably on the concept of paradigm shifts. As Levy puts it, these discoveries that cause earth-shattering changes in the way that we view the world. Ira thought that after reading the book, he would be able to recognize the next one that happened worldwide really early. Einhorn would eventually meet both of these men, and those relationships are symbolic of both his tenacity and his disrespect of boundaries. He describes this feeling of fulfilling self-cultivation as the only thing he could bear to do. He goes on and on about how the only thing that fulfills him is discovering what he's good at and then continuing to lean into those subjects. He said, quote, art makes me have violent reactions. And he found at this time that listening to music became too dangerous for my nervous system. Like it was too much stimulation for him and he couldn't handle it. It would send him over the edge. And I said, he thinks so highly of himself and his mental ability that he can't possibly behold something like music. And I'm just like mental illness. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Go see a doctor. Definitely. A footnote here for humor. While Ira is thinking of himself as the next great mind on the circuit of literature or science, Levy relates him to more of a Falstaff of the Penn English department. Falstaff is a character in Henry V. Uh, He is not seen but is referenced because of the influence he has from previous Shakespearean works. Even when he is supposedly dead, his influence lives by the line, fat, vain, and boastful. He hangs out and drinks with petty criminals. He's like a laugh, like a relief point in Shakespearean works. That's funny. So back to Morse Peckham, uh, just for another brief moment. After Ira dropped out of grad school, he and Peckham were still pretty close. He attended weekly meetings with a number of other intellectuals gathered at Peckham's house to go over poetry. He still had a key to Peckham's home, but eventually... All of this ended when Peckham became concerned with how obsessed Ira seemed to be with drugs. And others at these gatherings began to inform Peckham that they thought Ira was hiding pot in his house. So he was like, I can't do that. I'm old. I'm a professor at these prominent universities. So he changed the locks on his house. Oh, yeah, I inserted. He did tell someone at that point, like no one was ever clear on how much weed he was dealing and how like how far he was into trafficking drugs, or he was just like, here's a dime bag, leave a $10 bill on the counter. Right. But he told someone at some point, if I disappear for a few days, I'm probably in jail, mm. because he was dying to make some extra money. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I kind of felt like it was very minor, but maybe it got more intense when he was really hurting for money. I mean, if you think about the inflation that my rent in every apartment that I've lived in in the last five years has been over a thousand dollars, right? Versus seventy two dollars. Like, what would the inflation um, be like for oh weed? God. Is weed two dollars? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. So I in Levy's book, Ira mentions. I don't know if this is in conversation or if he heard it from other interviews or what, but he mentions that his relationship with Peckham ended when Peckham wanted to take it somewhere sexual. But any other any others who know Peckham note that he was asexual. He didn't need or want sex from Ira. He loved him like a son and the way a mentor loves their protege. A quote again from the book from Peckham on the end of their relationship is, I was his guru, and then he decided to become a guru himself. Such a good quote. Yeah. The only thing I added to this section was that another peer quotes about Peckham to Levy that he was non-sexual. Right. <laughs> not asexual. Not any- He was just a non-sexual, non-sexual being. being in general. So 1964, Ira spends the summer in California diving headfirst into the 60s mindset and a real dose of hippie-driven counterculture. Inspired by the music of the Beatles, acid rock, great drugs, and hedonism with a hint of Eastern religion, Ira had found the epicenter of free love and free thought. So he noted that such a societal rebellion wouldn't reach the Midwest or East Coast for years. He took in every bit of the, quote, sensual revolution. He spent his time between movements at Berkeley and Palo Alto doing drugs, loafing, and beginning to come to this awakening within that he was going to release to the world. So by the fall, he was back in Philly, teaching an English course at Temple University. He only secured the job for a year and was not asked to return the following semester, most likely because of his very lax teaching style and desire to be peers with his students rather than their professor. He openly talked about doing drugs with them and did nothing to discourage rumors about his lifestyle. All the nudity and poetry and no furniture. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were I wrote that in because his students were obsessed with this idea that he just lived in a bare apartment he just had a mattress on the floor yes. and then the only other thing in the whole apartment was books yeah pretty much <laughs> and I'm like he smells bad yes. you guys said he yes. smells bad he's not cool no. so then we get into 1965 after his teaching contract was not renewed he headed back to California for the year where he became a kind of drug guardian slash drifter. (laughs) He went from campus to campus, where the hippie revolution was already in full swing. He'd walk people through anything, any kind of trip, from LSD to a guided meditation. Most of the time, he would enter someone's home and immediately undress. Whether the tenants followed suit didn't matter to Ira, which I think is all part of his mind-fucking, like... This is where he began to kind of test the waters of what he hoped to come in leading a revolution, testing his seminars on students, the youth, any of these communes throughout California. But yeah, just like him entering a room and undressing and not asking for permission or asking if you're comfortable with it, like, that's a total mind fuck. Oh, and that's a huge power play. And act like you have clothes on. 
or like there's no well to act different. like you have clothes on but then to further say i'm cool with this dude if t- it's your problem yeah, if you're yeah. not cool with this yeah if you don't like yes. me being naked what's wrong with you totally cool it's not like you don't need to address that you're uncomfortable by my uncomfortable by my nudity you need to take a look inside yourself and see what happened to you that you're repressed right. sexually right so california and new york were major epicenters for the hippie movement They already had leaders and followers, but Philadelphia had nothing. And by the end of 65 and into 66, Ira was ready to be that revolutionary leader with new ideas, theories, and progressions. So in 1966, uh, school begins to offer up an alternative institution, one that was more democratic and free-spirited. So since the 60s movement was all about freedom to do whatever you want and fuck the establishment... Schools were getting savvy. University of Pennsylvania created a free university in which the idea is that anyone can teach and they can teach whatever they want. It's the students' decisions to make if that teacher is worthy of their time. So Ira Einhorn was ready to make his first appearance as the unicorn at Free U, and he was wildly successful. The whole establishment seemed to have much more success than anticipated. 750 students signed up for the first semester. And I think they estimated like 150. Which is insane because think about how many people were in your biggest class in college. Oh, no. My my college was tiny. (laughs) Maybe 30. I only had a couple of classes that were like big, big. But like I had seminar classes where like 100 kids would come. Oh, yeah. No, mine But it was all like we had to take art history A, B, and C. And it was (laughs) So Ira's class was titled The World of McLuhan? McLuhan. McLuhan. Okay. Ira's class is titled The World of McLuhan became wildly popular and attendance began to surpass the number of classroom, the number that the classroom could fit. A quote from a newspaper article at the time specifically about Ira's class is his teaching tools range from candles and incest to rock and roll and free word association. So later in the year, Ira became a third instructor for probably the most controversial course offered at Free U, which was a course on psychedelics. And then in the spring semester, he taught his very own psychedelics course titled Analogs to the LSD Experience. I, at this point, inserted one of the new words that I learned that I am so proud of and will continue to try to use. Triumvirate. Yes. Basically just means three men of power. Like What's three women of power? Where <laughs> it's triumvirate. It's the oh. same. <laughs> I'm making it the same. Okay, good. <laughs> Basically we just have to find a third to complete the right? coven and then that we will be a triumvirate. Right, I like it. In 1966, Ira visited California again. The author William Thompson watched Ira speak in California. That's stupid. <laughs> In 1966, Ira visited California again. The author William Thompson watched him speak there and left his own readers with this description. Ira came all over you, like the weather in Cuernavaca, rain and sunlight at the same time. He had the plump, affectionate envelopment of a Jewish mother, but it made me slightly uneasy to realize that he was going to love everyone, whether he liked it or not, and that, in many ways, love was his newly discovered instrument of aggression. Ooh, that's a good quote. I'm good at picking yeah, quotes. that's a great quote. <laughs> Chalk that up under small things I think I want to major in, Ira Einhorn. <laughs> quotes. Quote choosing. Um, okay, I think this Not is... Not Okay. So into 1967, he's back to teaching. 
And if you thought that was all, hell no. Into 67, Ira had two new locations he was teaching at. One was titled Evenings with Ira Einhorn, and it was taught in a lecture room on Penn's campus. This course pretty much covered whatever Ira wanted to cover, from cancer to third world revolutions. His second new place to hold class was at his own apartment, where he primarily took in freshmen, where he attempted to lead his students, in quotes from Levy's book, from the revolution of the body to the revolution of the mind. After about five sessions in these classes, so-called classes, um, they turned into parties where Ira encouraged his students to smoke weed, try LSD, and get naked after undressing himself. It's concerning. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Like, at, the only small positive I can see is that no actual educational institution recommended or advocated for this course. This right. is just like a thing that he's doing on his well, own. Well, and just like using but, your power as a professor to make it feel like this yes. is okay. And like you would assume the school would have approved that. No, they fucking did not. They had no idea that was happening. Well, right. Even for this to be free you where there is, you know, this is like, it's totally liberal. It's up to you, man. You get to choose. There still should have been a board of people deciding what was right conventionally acceptable not even conventionally but like you know are you gonna go teach a class about how to make pipe bombs maybe don't do that (laughs) there was no No. check no balance and there was and then for him to use (laughs) yeah just like you said to take this power that he's starting to earn and gain this reputation and then to turn it around and specifically target freshmen when we're gonna see over and over again throughout this series that he just happens to find himself in relationships with younger women, mm-hmm. happens to teach classes to underclassmen, mm-hmm. always has someone at his beck and call as a teaching assistant or needs research help. Right. He habitually abuses people that are younger than him. Yes, absolutely. So it was around this time that the Philadelphia Magazine um, author Gayton Fonzi wrote a big article recognizing Ira uh, as kind of the hippie guru leader of Philadelphia. Because kind of like I mentioned, New York and California were these big hot spots for this counterculture movement. They had leaders. Philadelphia now had their own. And he was finally getting recognition outside of the university for that because this was a legit magazine writing about him being a guru for this movement. So April 16th, 1967, Ira orchestrated Philadelphia's own Be-In, which was basically a movement to take a stance that hippies are here to stay. 1,500 to 2,000 people attended. It was absolutely nothing compared to the Be-Ins in California and New York at the time. But, I mean, it was, it was something. If anything, it got Ira even more publicity. So this publicity took off when an underground newspaper called The Drummer wrote stories on Ira and then let him have his own segment titled The Unicorn Speaks, which didn't last very long because Ira wasn't that good of a writer in his style of writing, misspelling things, capital letters, wherever the fuck he wanted, punctuational errors. It was not something the newspaper was aligned with, but to Ira, in quotes from uh, Levy's book, The more incoherent it was, the more people would say, wow, if he can understand this and write this, he must be really bright. He was also labeled by another writer for Philadelphia Magazine uh, by 
Bernie McCormick as a terrible writer. Like, huge emphasis on the terrible. Levy was like, this is not yeah. good. No one likes <laughs> yeah. it or needs to see it. Yeah, it's so funny because that all of that, that I was just talking about, like, when he first submitted his work, he got really mad when it was published and everything was, like, edited so it was coherent fucking normal and he was like no 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 that's not how i want and they're like what the fuck are you talking about like this no (laughs) we're not publishing shit like that so due to this publicity and more ira became a target for the police during this time so throughout the end of 67 his apartment um his apartment sometimes during parties was crashed by the police who had a search warrant for drugs he was address- arrested once for having pills, but, like, the charge didn't stick. So he wasn't, like, in and out of jail ever. And anytime he was arrested, no. it was for minor, minor drug possession that everyone was fucking doing at the time, you know? So it was not Everyone was doing it. Yes. And further, to build on that, isn't it a smart guru to literally be so entrenched in LSD that you're going to teach a class on it but also to mysteriously never have LSD, to mysteriously never have DMT, which he also freely gave out to other Mm -hmm. people. He never had any drugs on him other than pot. He probably didn't do them except pot. Oh, I think he fully did them. I think he did a lot of them. Yes, I think he did a shitload of LSD. I think he was just smart enough to never have it on him. I think he did other people's LSD Uh, like he stole other people's food. mm, Yep, yep, that is right. Which I can't be mad at him for. (laughs) It's disingenuous because he promotes himself as this person who is the guru and he's the authority figure on such things. But as just like a general citizen, you're smart. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get arrested for dumb shit. Into 1968, Ira began doing what seemed to be a bit more actual good. He helped create a youth center in the basement of his apartment complex called the Palton Trouble Center. And this is where we really get a sense of how Ira became such a figure during this time. Stephen Levy, the author, kind of describes Ira as safe. His viewpoints and his overall aesthetic was completely against social societal norms, but his vibe and his energy was very safe and appealing. And he was approachable. So that's why he was shown on interview shows. That's why he was being interviewed in general. And that's why so many people sought his counsel to understand this revolution. Not because he was smarter, brighter, or had the best ideas, but because he felt safe to be around. It was at this time that even church authorities were putting Ira on retainer just to speak to him and get an idea of the youth and how they could use that knowledge in their own religions to gain that youth back. So he really, it was just like this, he was, I mean, like Mackenzie described earlier, just like this big bear of a man who... You could easily talk to him, probably about anything. He's probably one of those people who... Anyone of any stance or class could approach him and he could listen and have a conversation with you. And here it is again, this idea that he's the pawn. Like, why would he ever be interested in encouraging anyone to go back to church? He's not. Mm -hmm. All he's interested in is cementing himself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he wants to carve out this place for himself where the church sees him as an ally the government, see, like the very local small government sees him as an ally. Yes. And then later, as we start to get into his bigger wheelings and dealings, he wants local politicians. He wants business leaders. He wants everyone yes. that is high up in Philadelphia to pay attention yes. to him. Yes. And where we're going to see that happen at 
is the infamous Earth Day celebration. Getting into the 70s, Ira Einhorn helps organize one of the most, you know, if not one of the first, the most well-known Earth Day celebration. for sure. (laughs) If you've ever seen a picture of Ira Einhorn other than his mugshot, it's one of him with his fist raised on the stage at this Earth Day party that he helped organize and consequently took over with his irrational ideas, his thirst for power, Mm -hmm. and his drive to impart his beliefs on other people. So next time, we will dive into Earth Day and get more into the um, strange musings of Ira Einhorn and uncover a little bit more of his violent tendencies. It's quite a different story than anything we've covered before. Just inherently because of how he is as a person. It took a lot to understand this. Definitely. And a lot of the story isn't true crime. No, it's it's just (laughs) it's just about about him. him. Yeah. So hopefully you guys Which enjoy is fine. It. <laughs> he's insufferable. Oh yeah. I think he's an interesting enough, I mean, character, even though he is a real person and he did real things. But, you know, him as a person is interesting enough to just talk about. Obviously, this whole book was just about him. We don't even talk yeah. about that. This and whole book doesn't even cover the end of <laughs> our story. <laughs> right. This book was published before he even goes to jail for what he does. So insane. So we're the end is a wild ride. You're gonna have to suffer through the dumb bullshit that is him, just like we did, and then we promise the ending is good payoff. (laughs) And there's uh even past him being captured and finally being quote brought to justice, there are further interviews with him from his much later life in prison. He never changes. I'll spoil that part of the ending for you. He is just as hypothetical, enigmatic, and delusional at the end of his life as he is the day he sets foot on college campus. Of course he is. Well, that is all we have for you guys today. Yeah, we hope you join us next time for our second installment in the Ira Einhorn series. Once again, the book that we are reading is by Stephen Levy. And it is The Unicorn Killer, Murder in the Age of Aquarius. Um, I believe you can buy it on Kindle, uh, as I did, or you can get a secondhand copy in paperback. Yeah, I think I from ordered some resale or what? books. We usually hold the uh, book review portion until the very end, but I'll go ahead and let you know right now. Like, If you think you're going to read along with us after this introduction, get it tonight. Yeah, get it now. <laughs> and give yourself a lot of breaks in between it's because long. it's literally... So much work to read it that I would read 10 pages and be like, I have to take a nap. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It is not material that you fly through. No. No. You eat it like something that's crunchy and you don't have water. (laughs) Instead of water, you have cottage cheese. So you get to put cottage cheese on top of a dry cracker and then think, hmm, this is great. It's a good comparison. (laughs) With that horrible analogy. (laughs) We're going to peace out. We will see you here next time. Thank you for listening. Until next time. We're here to keep you up at night. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. Ooh, yours is always so much better. (laughs) Bye, guys. Oh, it's so good. Ring me out. Make me a tune. (laughs) Bye.
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.